Chapters 63 and 64 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 63. I saw my solicitor at once, but when I tried to write to Theobald, I found it better to say I would run down and see him. I therefore proposed this, asking him to meet me at the station, and hinting that I must bring bad news about his son. I knew he would not get my letter more than a couple of hours before I should see him, and thought the short interval of suspense might break the shock of what I had to say. Never do I remember to have halted more between two opinions than on my journey to Battersby upon this unhappy errand. When I thought of the little sallow-faced lad whom I had remembered years before, of the long and savage cruelty with which he had been treated in childhood, cruelty none the less real for having been due to ignorance and stupidity rather than to deliberate malice, of the atmosphere of lying and self-laudatory hallucination in which he had been brought up, of the readiness the boy had shown to love anything that would be good enough to let him, and of how affection for his parents, unless I am much mistaken, had only died in him because it had been killed anew, again and again and again, each time that it had tried to spring. When I thought of all this, I felt as though, if the matter had rested with me, I would have sentenced Theobald and Christina to mental suffering even more severe than that which was about to fall upon them. But on the other hand, when I thought of Theobald's own childhood, of that dreadful old George Pontifex, his father, of John and Mrs. John, and his two sisters— when again I thought of Christina's long years of hope deferred that maketh the heart sick before she was married, of the life she must have led at Cramsford, and of the surroundings in the midst of which she and her husband both lived at Battersby, I felt as though the wonder was that misfortunes so persistent had not been followed by even greater retribution. Poor people! they had tried to keep their ignorance of the world from themselves by calling it the pursuit of heavenly things, and then shutting their eyes to anything that might give them trouble. A son having been born to them, they had shut his eyes also as far as was practicable. Who could blame them? They had chapter and verse for everything they had either done or left undone. There is no better thumbed precedent than that for being a clergyman and a clergyman's wife. In what respect had they differed from their neighbors? How did their household differ from that of any other clergyman of the better sort from one end of England to the other? Why, then, should it have been upon them, of all the people in the world, that this tower of Siloam had fallen Surely it was the tower of Siloam that was not, rather than those who stood under it. It was the system, rather than the people, that was at fault. If Theobald and his wife had but known more of the world and of the things that are therein, they would have done little harm to anyone. 
selfish they would have always been, but not more so than may very well be pardoned, and not more than other people would be. As it was, the case was hopeless. It would be no use their even entering into their mother's wombs and being born again. They must not only be born again, but they must be born again, each one of them, of a new father and of a new mother, and of a different line of ancestry, for many generations before their minds could become supple enough to learn anew. The only thing to do with them was to humor them and make the best of them till they died, and be thankful when they did so. Theobald got my letter, as I had expected, and met me at the station nearest to Battersby. As I walked back with him towards his own house, I broke the news to him as gently as I could. I pretended that the whole thing was in great measure a mistake, and that though Ernest no doubt had had intentions which he ought to have resisted, he had not meant going anything like the length which Miss Maitland supposed. I said we had felt how much appearances were against him, and had dared not to set up this defense before the magistrate, though we had no doubt about its being the true one. Theobald acted with a readier and acuter moral sense than I had given him credit for. "'I will have nothing more to do with him,' he exclaimed promptly. "'I will never see his face again. Do not let him write either to me or to his mother. We know of no such person. Tell him you have seen me, and that from this day forward I shall put him out of my mind as though he had never been born.' I have been a good father to him, and his mother idolized him. Selfishness and ingratitude have been the only return we have ever had from him. My hope henceforth must be in my remaining children. I told him how Ernest's fellow curate had got hold of his money, and hinted that he might very likely be penniless, or nearly so, on leaving prison. Theobald did not seem displeased at this, but added soon afterwards, "'If this proves to be the case, tell him from me that I will give him a hundred pounds if he will tell me through you when he will have it paid. But tell him not to write and thank me, and say that if he attempts to open up direct communication either with his mother or myself, he shall not have a penny of the money.' Knowing what I knew— and having determined on violating Miss Pontifex's instructions should the occasion arise, I did not think Ernest would be any the worse for a complete estrangement from his family. So I acquiesced more readily in what Theobald had proposed than that gentleman may have expected. Thinking it better that I should not see Christina, I left Theobald near Battersby and walked back to the station. On my way, I was pleased to reflect that Ernest's father was less of a fool than I had taken him to be, and had the greater hopes, therefore, that his son's blunders might be due to postnatal rather than congenital misfortunes. Accidents which happen to a man before he is born, in the persons of his ancestors, will, if he remembers them at all, leave an indelible impression on him. They will have molded his character so that, do what he will, 
it is hardly possible for him to escape their consequences. If a man is to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he must do so not only as a little child, but as a little embryo, or rather as a zoosperm, and not only this, but as one that has come from zoosperms, which have entered into the kingdom of heaven before him for many generations. Accidents which occur for the first time, and belong to the period since a man's last birth, are not, as a general rule, so permanent in their effects, though of course they may sometimes be so. At any rate, I was not displeased at the view of which Ernest's father took of the situation. Chapter 64 After Ernest had been sentenced, he was taken back to the cells to wait for the van which should take him to Coldbath Fields, where he was to serve his term. He was still too stunned and dazed by the suddenness with which events had happened during the last twenty-four hours to be able to realize his position. A great chasm had opened between his past and future. Nevertheless, he breathed, his pulse beat, he could think and speak. It seemed to him that he ought to be prostrated by the blow that had fallen on him, but he was not prostrated. He had suffered from many smaller latches far more acutely. It was not until he thought of the pain his disgrace would inflict on his father and mother that he felt how readily he would have given up all he had, rather than have fallen into his present plight. It would break his mother's heart. It must, he knew it would, and it was he who had done this. He had had a headache coming on for all the forenoon, but as he thought of his father and mother, his pulse quickened and the pain in his head suddenly became intense. He could hardly walk to the van, and he found its motion insupportable. On reaching the prison he was too ill to walk without assistance across the hall to the corridor or gallery where prisoners are marshaled on their arrival. The prison warder, seeing at once that he was a clergyman, did not suppose he was shamming, as he might have done in the case of an old jailbird. He therefore sent for the doctor. When this gentleman arrived, Ernest was declared to be suffering from an incipient attack of brain fever, and was taken away to the infirmary. Here he hovered for the next two months between life and death never in full possession of his reason, and often delirious. But at last, contrary to the expectation of both doctor and nurse, he began to slowly recover. It is said that those who have been nearly drowned find the return to consciousness much more painful than the loss of it had been. And so it was with my hero. As he lay helpless and feeble, it seemed to him a refinement of cruelty that he had not died once and for all during his delirium. He thought he should still most likely recover, only to sink a little later on from shame and sorrow. Nevertheless, from day to day he mended, though so slowly that he could hardly realize it to himself. One afternoon, however, about three weeks after he had regained consciousness, the nurse who tended him, and who had been very kind to him, made some little rallying sally which amused him, 
He laughed, and as he did so, she clapped her hands and told him he would be a man again. The spark of hope was kindled, and again he wished to live. Almost from that moment his thoughts began to turn less to the horrors of the past and more to the best way of meeting the future. His worst pain was on behalf of his father and mother, and how he should again face them. It still seemed to him that the best thing, both for him and them, would be that he should sever himself from them completely, take whatever money he could recover from prior, and go to some place in the uttermost parts of the earth, where he should never meet anyone who had known him at school or college, and start afresh. Or perhaps he might go to the gold fields in California or Australia, of which such wonderful accounts were then heard. There he might even make his fortune and return as an old man many years hence, unknown to everyone, and if so, he would live at Cambridge. As he built these castles in the air, the spark of life became a flame, and he longed for health and for the freedom which, now that so much of his sentence had expired, was not after all very far distant. Then things began to shape themselves more definitely. Whatever happened, he would be a clergyman no longer. It would have been practically impossible for him to have found another curacy, even if he had been so minded. But he was not so minded. He hated the life he had been leading ever since he had begun to read for orders. He could not argue about it, but he simply loathed it and would have no more of it. As he dwelt on the prospect of becoming a layman again, however disgraced, he rejoiced at what had befallen him, and found a blessing in this very imprisonment, which had at first seemed such an unspeakable misfortune. Perhaps the shock of so great a change in his surroundings had accelerated changes in his opinions, just as the cocoons of silkworms, when sent in baskets by rail, hatch before their time through the novelty of heat and jolting. But however this may be, his belief in the stories concerning the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and hence his faith in all the other Christian miracles, had dropped off him once and forever. The investigation he had made in consequence of Mr. Shaw's rebuke, hurried though it was, had left a deep impression upon him, and now he was well enough to read, he made the New Testament his chief study. Going through it in the spirit which Mr. Shaw had desired of him, that is to say as one who wished neither to believe nor disbelieve, but cared only about finding out whether he ought to believe or no. The more he read in this spirit, the more the balance seemed to lie in favor of unbelief, till, in the end, all further doubt became impossible, and he saw plainly enough that, whatever else might be true, the story that Christ had died, come to life again, and been carried from the earth through clouds into the heavens, could not now be accepted by unbiased people. It was well he had found it out so soon. In one way or another it was sure to meet him sooner or later. He would probably have seen it years ago, if he had not been hoodwinked by people who were paid for hoodwinking him. What should he have done, 
he asked himself, if he had not made his present discovery till years later, when he was more deeply committed to the life of a clergyman. Should he have had the courage to face it, or would he not more probably have evolved some excellent reason for continuing to think as he had thought hitherto? Should he have had the courage to break away even from his present curacy? He thought not, and knew not whether to be more thankful for having been shown his error, or for having been caught up and twisted round so that he could hardly err farther, almost at that very moment of his having discovered it. The price he had had to pay for this boon was light, compared with the boon itself. What is too heavy a price to pay for having duty made at once clear and easy of fulfillment instead of very difficult? He was sorry for his father and mother, and he was sorry for Miss Maitland, but he was no longer sorry for himself. It puzzled him, however, that he should not have known how much he had hated being a clergyman till now. He knew that he did not particularly like it, but if anyone had asked him whether he actually hated it, he would have answered no. I suppose people almost always want something external to themselves to reveal to them their own likes and dislikes. Our most assured likings have for the most part been arrived at neither by introspection nor by any process of conscious reasoning, but by the bounding forth of the heart to welcome the gospel proclaimed to it by another. We hear some say that such and such a thing is thus or thus, and in a moment the train that has been laid within us, but whose presence we knew not, flashes into consciousness and perception. Only a year ago he had bounded forth to welcome Mr. Hawke's sermon. Since then he had bounded after a college of spiritual pathology. Now he was in full cry after rationalism, pure and simple. How could he be sure that his present state of mind would be more lasting than his previous ones? He could not be certain but he felt as though he were now on firmer ground than he had ever been before. And no matter how fleeting his present opinions might prove to be, he could not but act according to them till he saw reason to change them. How impossible, he reflected, it would have been for him to do this if he had remained surrounded by people like his father and mother, or Pryor and Pryor's friends, and his rector. He had been observing, reflecting, and assimilating all these months with no more consciousness of mental growth than a schoolboy has of the growth of his body. But should he have been able to admit his growth to himself, and to act up to his increased strength, if he had remained in constant close connection with people who assured him solemnly that he was under a hallucination? The combination against him was greater than his unaided strength could have broken through, and he felt doubtful how far any shock less severe than the one from which he was suffering would have sufficed to free him. End of chapter 64 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman